0: I remember! I remember! Okay, I'm I'm gonna do this introduction in the style of Nicholas Cage. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna imagine he's been given this as a script and he's choosing to deliver it. I'm gonna t- I'm gonna try and make the same decisions. <laughs> Impossible. Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns podcast. This week is vampires kiss. <laughs> I think I did it. I think I nailed it. Um, I'm Sol. <laughs> Uh, and joining me for what is really going to be more of a discussion of Nicolas Cage I think, <laughs> than yes. a discussion of <laughs> Vampire's Kiss specifically, uh, is the one, the only Mr. Alan Turing. <laughs> Hello.
1: Fascinating film we've got in front of us today.
0: I know. I mean, it's been a while, I think, since we've done a real, you know, obscure, but uh, how should I word this? Generally speaking on this show, we do episodes that tie into big upcoming blockbuster releases. Every now and then, we'll make a point of going back and doing a classic or a film very dear to us that we want to cover. And then, sort of, less often, I think there's probably only been, I don't know, maybe ten cases like this so far. Like, we've really not done enough of these. But we, we do do them every now and then. We will do a film that is just... an utterly obscure gem that we can't <laughs> recommend highly enough as a piece of film history that, like, <laughs> real film buffs should be aware of. Yeah. That does not mean it's good. <laughs> yes, that does not mean it's good. We did Raw, the 1981 Noel Marshall film, where they just got a lot of lions and tigers and big cats in a house with... <laughs> A skeleton film crew and just filmed what happened. (laughs) Um, You know, we've done a couple of films like this. Pink Flamingos is perhaps in this territory, although that is a legitimate classic, I would say. A lot of people think very highly of that, yourself included.
1: Yeah. Even The Room, I suppose, to some extent. Mm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Today we are doing 1988's Vampire's Kiss, which I'm going to venture a guess... I'm going to guess more people listening to this will not have heard of this film than have. Hmm, don't know. It's pretty well known. We often fall into the trap, I think, of uh, talking about films as if people have seen them, uh, which, you know, is usually pretty alright if you're talking about Star Wars, but we should make a real effort today to be aware that people have possibly not seen this film. Vampire's Kiss is an inexplicable black comedy film from 1988 starring Nicolas Cage as a man who believes he is turning into a vampire. Yeah. And that's pretty much it.
1: <laughs> well the, the the thing is, right? Like just I think the concept here, I think the basic idea is quite interesting. It's really interesting in fact because basically what is happening is the main character He's convinced he's turning into a vampire and, and you know his behaviour comes from a lot of that. But what's actually happening is he's just very mentally ill. What exactly is going on we don't know, but he's hallucinating,
0: he's imagining things, he thinks he's a vampire. I'm flattered you say that, Alan, because I actually had this idea for a film back when I was a teenager but I uh, then became aware of George A. Romero's film Martin about uh, uh, is he or isn't he a vampire and kind of decided not to move ahead with it because it was too similar. Uh, But it was basically this exact idea. Not with a a highfalutin New York businessman. (laughs) A guy thinks they're becoming a vampire, are they? Are they not? Actually, it was kind of this film, but if Nicolas Cage were not the protagonist but more of a villain, but it, it was very similar.
1: I know we've definitely mentioned before, I can't, I can't bring any specific examples to mind, but there's definitely been times before where there's things, you know, where something supernatural is happening, and it's like, ooh, is it all in his head, or or is it actually a supernatural thing going on? And generally in films, it comes down on the line of, oh, it's something supernatural going on, he is actually turning into a
0: werewolf, or it is a ghost. It's either that, or they at least make it ambiguous.
1: And I always complain that I want it to be actually in their head, or at least ambiguous. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would argue that in this film there's no ambiguity. I don't think yeah. um, it's very clear that he is just um, g- going mad. I don't know exactly uh, what what you would uh, what it
0: would fall under. It's it's a very um, odd decision, to be honest, on the part of the filmmakers because I can't think of many examples of a film like this where they are so explicitly this guy's mentally ill. Yeah. And that's all there is to it, which I really like. And to, but to be so unambiguous about it in terms of the whole vampire
1: mythology thing, you're losing that element of suspense of like, oh, is this going to be a vampire or, or is it? Because obviously, in the real world, you're not going to be a vampire, but in the film world, it's like, well, this could end up being a vampire film, or it could end up being a film about a guy losing his mm. mind. But you'd lose that because I think it's quite clear pretty early on that it's all in his head. I don't think they're trying to hide it. And but then, if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that, then um, perhaps you need to actually investigate mental illness a little bit, rather than just go, let's get someone who is possibly mentally ill himself, <laughs> and get, <laughs> and then get him to act <laughs> his idea of what a crazy person would do. And then film him in various situations.
0: Yeah, I I I think it's interesting as well because you could get a hell of a lot of tension out of the film both ways. You know, knowing they're mentally ill, you could get a hell of a lot of tension by making you more well, making you sympathetic towards the character and therefore concerned for his well-being. You know, with him putting him in a situation where people might kill him or whatever, but. Even that doesn't really come across in this film, because Peter Lowe, the uh, main character played by Nicolas Cage, is just utterly detestable, mm. and I don't think there's any degree of him that's sympathetic, or even supposed to be. So it's just a very weird film all round. I, I, I think, to be honest, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the people involved uh, would argue that the hero of the film is Alva, the um, assistant of his character.
1: Yeah, she's like a secretary of some kind, yeah, or PA, or whatever.
0: Uh, played by Maria Conchita Alonso, mm-hmm. who he spends about a third of the film just berating and abusing for no reason <laughs> whatsoever.
1: Yeah, and also that <laughs> that comes before, during, and after like this him go descending into mental illness. It his abuse of her doesn't feel connected to the vampire yeah. stuff. Like, it feels like he's just a nasty piece of work anyway.
0: <laughs> trying to read between the lines, I think the filmmaker was, or the filmmakers, I think they were trying to do a portrait of that kind of 1980s oh, yeah. high-flying businessman. wanker, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that is really hammered home by a few scenes early on where Peter Lowe is chatting with his colleagues, other high ranking people at his company or other companies and they're all saying horrible things about <laughs> you know women and stuff. Well they say
1: yeah I believe it's the scene there's a scene immediately after he very publicly Berates her and chases her down the corridor. She she's running away from him because she's scared of him. He
0: he pursues her into the
1: women's toilet. She she gets to a point where she says, "I have a gun. Don't come near me, or I'll shoot you." Like that's how threatened she is. And then like the next scene is him and the bosses and his co- his colleagues, male white colleagues, all going, oh, "She's such a yes." She asked me. She asked me to fire you because of this. And what a stupid cow. you know, like that kind of uh, reaction. And then you know, in the next day, she's expected to be back at work. And I and I think it it really does descend really quickly. Like she, we get we hit that point really quickly where she's just terrified for her life. I, I'm not quite sure how much this is intended when it was made, but looking at it now, it, it really feels like, especially that character, it's all about you know being stuck in a job, and especially as a woman um you know she she can't afford to lose this job so she has to keep going back into this terrible environment and uh, that that kind of whole abuse abusive system kind of thing you know that we're we're more aware yeah. of now it feels like it's highlighting that but i don't know if it is i think it's just expressing reality
0: mm. <laughs> At the risk of giving this film too much credit up front it sounds like we're being very positive about this film um, do stick with us because it, it cannot be overstated how inexplicable this film is. It is. It's a classic film that feels as though an alien made it in a lot of ways. <laughs> but I think to give it some credit, what you just spoke about is intentional. Yeah. Um. Or at least adjacent themes are intentionally being explored here. Uh, it was written by a guy called Joseph Minion. Mm-hmm. And I was reading up about the genesis of the film. Apparently he was in an extremely toxic relationship. He went on holiday with his girlfriend and ended up writing this script whilst on holiday. Um uh, not entirely sure. I mean, that probably speaks to volu- you know <laughs> some volumes about what was <laughs> going on in that holiday if she was out on the beach, and I think it was in the Bahamas or something, and he was... I mean, maybe he was out writing in the sun, I don't know. But he wrote a screenplay whilst on holiday with his girlfriend, and they broke up at the end of the holiday. He was actually going to direct the film himself, but he said that it ended up just being too dark and too painful. Yeah, it's too close uh, to the the material for him. (laughs) Yeah, so he didn't want to touch it. Which is why it was handed to a guy called Robert Bierman, who is um, a British guy. Yeah, I looked him up. Um yeah, quite a fascinating career. Well, not fascinating, just <laughs> it made me it made me a bit sad. I mean, I mean to be fair, this film is arguably very badly directed, so Do you I, know what though? I did pick up on a there was a couple of things where I was thinking that's a very
1: interesting thing. There were a lot of interesting decisions being made in this film. Like, there's quite a lot of shots that are really top-down shots where they they like yeah, yeah, they've right, yeah. like, attached the camera to the ceiling kind of feel. And it, it's you know what? Like, one thing I took away from this film was like, oh, what's what's the director done? You know, this is some there's some interesting mm. things here. There's like a young director
0: who's like figuring out some playing around. It felt to me like this is your classic second movie a guy's made when they've been given a bit of money and. They're still figuring out, their, you know, what they're doing, but maybe they're going to go on to make some decent films, and you know,
1: I think that's largely true, isn't it? Apart from the
0: going on to other things. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. It, it, it was that, but it seems like this film performed so badly that Robert Bierman moved back to the UK and just settled for a career of directing episodes of The Bill and Holby City. Yeah. Um, which, you know... It's a living. I'd, I'd love to be a director of The Bill and Holby City for my career, so, you know, I'm, kind of I'm, I'm punching up here when I sort of...
1: Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd love to be a director. I don't know if I want to be a director of Holby City casualty, because it's, like, it's not like you have a lot of creative freedom there, you
0: know? You know, it wouldn't be my first choice, but... I'd take that over my current life. <laughs> but...
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, but like I, I, I think Robert Bierman had like he'd made his name doing commercial and stuff like that, and so you know picked up some attention. Uh, so Hollywood came a knocking and knocking. And did you read that he was uh, he was going to be make he was going to make the Fly remake? You know, the
0: Jeff Goldblum. Oh really? Film. I didn't read that. No. Yeah, that
1: was he was lined up to do that, and then his daughter died, and so it was like uh, he obviously needed time to uh... deal with that. Uh, and obviously that that became someone else's problem. But you can't imagine anyone else doing that, can you? The way that it turned out. But yeah, so then this is what he did instead. Ultimately, like a year or two later.
0: Now, in a nutshell, this film is: if if you're aware of Nicolas Cage and how insane and ridiculous he is, and the uh, ongoing thought experiment is he a good actor or a bad actor?
1: Nicolas Cage, genius or mental? (laughs) (laughs) It
0: it cannot be overstated. This is the purest distillation of what Nicolas Cage brings to a project. Yeah. Good and bad. This is like Nicolas Cage and a director who either couldn't control him or (laughs) didn't want to.
1: Well, that's, that's, I think that's definitely, I think this is a, this film. This film's at a level, you know, Nicolas Cage wasn't hugely famous at the time, uh, so this film is at a level where it's a low budget enough that perhaps there's not that many people keeping an eye on what's happening, mm. Then, so there's not as much control of him. A first-time director, or at least sort of at this level, who's like wants to make a statement, he realises what he's got, this kind of rough diamond where it's like, wow, this guy's going all in, I'm going to just let him do whatever he wants and see what turns out, because the character's mad. So give me a mad actor, that's great. Mm. And I think they've just really gone for it, and you know, the end result doesn't work. But <laughs> I think that I think that's the intention, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Nicholas Cage was still very much an up and coming star at this point. He was fresh off of Moonstruck. Yeah. Uh when he signed on to this, which he you know, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for that film and, you know, some other awards. I think Cher might have been Oscar nominated opposite him. Yeah, yeah. Lining up his next film was you know, a big decision for his career. He signed on to make this film about a madman. Uh, his agent, Alan, I don't know if you know this, his agent convinced him it was not a good role to take after Moonstruck. <laughs> and Nicolas Cage actually dropped out. He he was replaced with uh, Judd Nelson, briefly. Okay. I don't okay. think they got to the point that Judd Nelson actually signed on, but he was being lined up to step in. And then Nicolas Cage decided, actually I do want to do this film, even though my agent has convinced me it's a terrible move <laughs> and bad for my career. And he did it anyway. Sort of a sign of the erratic things to come from Cage on this project.
1: Well, you know, like at the time, I guess, especially after Moonstruck, Nicolas Cage is kind of a a romantic lead. Like that's obviously what his agent oh, well, wants him to be. Or at least a kind of Yeah,
0: his his agent was Perhaps a
1: gritty one, you know
0: his agent was absolutely correct that this was a bad choice of project to take after Moonstruck from a conventional actor career point of view. And not just on the basis of what the film turned out to be, it's also just the character
1: on paper. Like we said, it's a nasty piece of work and rather uh, just unsympathetic in general. Plus, you know, you're playing crazy. I mean, yeah. So
0: it. I will argue that maybe this has done wonders for his career long term, because ninety percent of the Nicholas Cage gifs and memes <laughs> and funny clips you see on the internet now come from this film. Yeah. And so it's it's been a goldmine of making him relevant in the internet era. But certainly back in 1988, no, it was a terrible decision. <laughs>
1: But also, like just the other way around, this film would not be remembered in any way were it not for this performance.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's the
1: reason we're watching this film
0: now, <laughs> and and you know, I maybe you know the, the concept is great, but the script is not very good, and I I don't think that can be put entirely down to you know direction and what have you. It's just not a particularly funny. You know, uh, This kind of script should be full of gags and more than just a blunt satire that just beats the same note over and over and over, which is kind of what it is. It's a great idea, but it feels very much like a professional writer's churned it out over a week away in the Bahamas, uh, which is what it is, you know? <laughs> and then maybe they should have done a load of subsequent drafts. But it, it's, it's just a baffling film because... It really it really falls, I would say, into so-bad-it's-good territory, very firmly. I don't think we've done a film that properly is considered a, a so-bad-it's-good film on this podcast before. We've done The Happening, which I certainly put in that box, but you and Calvin <laughs> don't agree with me about that. Um, it's just bad. What about The Room? Oh god, of course we have done The Room, I forgot about The Room. This is very similar to The Room, but the difference is... This was intended as a comedy. It it's this weird multiple layers here, where what Nicolas Cage is doing is supposed to be funny, but then it's so ridiculous, it's not funny in the same way exactly that we're supposed to take it, and so we're almost, we're laughing at it instead of with it, even though it is supposed to be funny. It's a very weird dynamic.
1: Yeah, and tonally it doesn't match, like the way it's filmed mm. or something. It, It never feels like a comedy. It just feels
0: like a really weird acting performance. Like, if you... If if it was like an Adam Sandler movie, Nicolas Cage's performance might make sense. But, yeah, it feels like an otherwise normal film that Nicolas Cage has just corrupted. Yeah, if this character
1: was playing, you know an asshole boss in Horrible Bosses 3 yeah like it as just a kind of over the top asshole boss it would kind of make sense so, or even I was just thinking then like if you got Jim Carrey to play this role like at this level it would probably come across as comedy like full on because mm. that's how Jim Carrey does it whereas Nicolas Cage he's I think that's perhaps what it is he's so sincere about what he's <laughs> doing
0: Yeah, But then, like I say, you would never do that with Jim Carrey without putting some jokes in there as well. You'd have some proper gags written into the script, and that's why it would become a beloved family classic or whatever. And that's also what's sorely lacking from this. There's maybe three or four gags written into the script, but it's largely, like you say, tonally, it feels like a drama. And then there's just this bizarre performance running around and like the the concept the core ideas the basic plot are all funny but you know it's not it's it's a weird mission and this is what i mean i I think it's just a very badly directed film because it's all yeah maybe just tonally
1: it doesn't make any sense yeah there's a there's a scene early on which should be especially when it's early on it hasn't gone into the serious stuff yet it should be such so it should be funny where you know he's basically brought a lady back to his apartment, and a bat suddenly flies in through the open window and like disturbs them, and they're having f- they're kind of drunk, they're laughing, and they end up having to leave because it's a
0: bat. He's grabbing the curtains and he's going, shoo, is shoo. That, is that when he runs down the stairs when they leave, and he goes, ha 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 ha, whilst falling over himself. <laughs> And and that's, like, before, that's before the descent into madness of thinking he's a vampire, which yes. speaks again to what you were saying, that there's not like this... It's meant to be this sort of sl- descent into madness, but he starts <laughs> as Nicolas Cage at 11 and doesn't change. He just adds, like spiky teeth into the mix (laughs) i mean that scene alan apparently he was furious that they had to use a fake bat to the point that he had his pa running out uh to the park to try and catch a a (laughs) wild bat (laughs) and the only reason he was talked into doing it the way they did it is because the director convinced him that if a real bat bit him, it could kill him. <laughs> and he relented and agreed. So to, to give Robert Beerman some credit, it sounds like a lot of his job on this film was look, like Nicolas Cage wrangling and convincing <laughs> him not to... Because there's, there's another point where this comes up later on in the film. Uh, there's a point where the character shoots himself in the mouth with a gun... Mm. Unbeknownst to him, the bullets had been swapped for blanks, and Nicolas Cage again was apparently furious that he had to use a prop gun rather than a real gun with blanks in it. <laughs> and the director had to explain to him that shooting himself in the mouth with a blank would probably still kill him.
1: Yeah, but that's it, it, in that scene. You know, you see him pull the trigger. You see it, and there is an explosive in that gun. Like it's obviously firing out the back. But there's something going on there. And it's just like right in his... Obviously, it's right in his face. Mm. That's... He obviously... He loves putting himself into all that situation, Mm. doesn't he?
0: And and again, um, talking about that scene, uh, one of the finest moments in the whole film is he starts crying after trying to shoot himself with the gun and uh, in his head realising that he's immortal and can't be killed, uh, which is how he perceives what's just happened. And he cries this amazing, boo hoo! (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, he was so annoyed about having to use a fake gun that he challenged himself to say boo hoo in a way that didn't sound silly (laughs) Mm -hmm. to channel his anger.
1: He's one of a kind.
0: I just want to kind of go through the the film in a kind of not quite scene by scene, but I mean, I made a lot of notes as I rewatched it the other day. The notes are basically all just lists of bizarre moments that I'd like to talk <laughs> about from Cage's performance. We've we've spoken on one of our diminisodes, uh recently uh, that should be out before this episode. Hopefully, if not, it'll be out shortly after about Nicolas Cage and, and we basically, you know, we, we both agree he is a he's a really great actor when he's used properly. But mm. he's he's like a nat he's like a force of nature and you, you have to just do your best to channel it. You can't stop yeah. it. You have to just put some things in place to try and aim it in the right direction and you can end up with something wonderful. But, you know, you can end up with something Baffling and and just bizarre and and this is purely, this is this is just letting the the dam break open. You know, it's just yeah, yeah, it's yeah unfiltered yeah. Cage and and I think that's it. You know, it, it's like throughout the film, Cage is doing this accent, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard people refer to it as a kind of attempt at a Transylvanian accent. Uh, that's not <laughs> that's not what it is. It's I mean it's certainly not your classic uh, in the accent. <laughs> you know, it's not that it sounds a bit like Keanu Reeves and Bill and Ted at times. <laughs> yeah. Mixed yeah, yeah. with Keanu Reeves and Dracula. <laughs> it's um apparently Nicolas Cage was trying to do the voice of a shallow, pompous idiot who was putting on a fake affected voice to sound. Yeah, he's trying more. to sound a bit sophisticated. And, yeah, um, but it's obviously not a real accent, and and you know to give him credit, that that's what he's doing, and it makes perfect sense what he's doing. But this is where you need a director to either make the film's tone match or tweak what he's doing a bit. because Yeah, it's tweaking. So... I think is that because it's not clear that that is what's happening. Um, so, yeah, he has an encounter with a bat. It's an omen of what's to come. And he, he basically just starts hallucinating that this woman is a vampire who is visiting him to feed on him and turn him into a vampire.
1: He meets this woman in a bar and they go back to his place, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, during Throes of Passion, she bites his neck and then that's what it was. And it's, it's not 100% Beals. clear.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem like my reading of it was cast on a monday started filming on tuesday <laughs> is that is that right is that the Appar- apparently so according to the film's audio commentary
1: i my reading of it because he bumps into her later and she kind of she obviously recognizes him he just has his one night stand with his woman and maybe she bit him in a sort of Playful way, but in his head, like it turned into this whole other thing. And then after that point, he's hallucinating her and seeing her all the time, whereas actually she's
0: nothing to do with it. Yeah, and like we say, he's abusing his assistant at work. Alva, Alva, Alva. Basically, he's the the whole plot. Pretty much is. He needs to dig up a contract from their, like, files. From, like, 25 years old. Contract. Yeah. He asks her to uh, go and find it. She says, basically, she looks where it's meant to be and it's not there. So he says, well, find it. It's going to be down there somewhere. Uh, there's an implication that he himself may have misfiled it. <laughs> He's
1: never misfiled
0: anything. Never. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the delivery is just amazing. The first time he's berating her. Am I getting through to you? Alva?" <laughs> and then we have a scene where he goes home again, and for no reason whatsoever, and I think this speaks to what I was saying, that I think this film might be badly directed. There are two mimes just stood outside his flat, <laughs> And one of them... One of them slaps the other one, well, and that's it. it. Yeah. And there's and there's no there's no there's no apparent reason or purpose. They never come back later, although well, they, they do because he goes he goes into his apartment and he sees them doing
1: this little sort of slap dance routine, and then later on when he comes back out of his apartment, they're still there and they're doing the same movements. So I think the idea is that they're just there repeating the same few moves
0: over and over again like this whole time.
1: I mean, I'm not saying that justifies it.
0: (laughs) Would you like to know what the director uh, Robert Bierman said in the audio commentary for this film upon getting to that scene?
1: Okay, well, I think I think those mimes are acting out, um, you know, a a domestic dispute between in a couple. So is it is it a reflection of um, relationship (laughs) troubles? I don't know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what he says in the commentary is I don't know what yeah. this is about I don't know what I was doing, I haven't got a clue <laughs> I, I love that though
1: <laughs> oh, okay <Yes. laughs> it's
0: very refreshing <laughs> but yeah, as as we say, Nicholas Cage uh, he, he also has a therapist who we see Mm -hmm. Uh, repeatedly that he'll go and drop a load of exposition on, uh, played by Elizabeth Ashley, and um, he complains about the fact that his assistant at work is unable to find this file that he needs uh, at which point the quote you just alluded to comes up where she suggests it might have been misfiled and he jumps up and folds his arms like a a little kid <laughs> getting angry <laughs>
1: how could somebody misfile something what could be easier it's all alphabetical you just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order you know, a b c d e f g Hita. h i j k l m n o p q r s t u v w x y z huh? good. You know your alphabet. I didn't even anything! Not once! Not one time!
0: What makes Nicolas Cage different from other actors is he keeps going all the (laughs) way to the end of the alphabet. Shouting the entire 26 (laughs) letters of the alphabet. (laughs) And I can't imagine it was written that way. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, then it's just a series of sequences of him, you know, back and forth between him berating his assistant Alva Occasionally checking in with his therapist, and him just kind of standing around being weird in his flat. <laughs> it, you know, th- there's the uh, the infamous meme of Nicolas Cage like staring with his eyes wide open, doing a creepy face when he's telling off Alva. Um, yeah. y- if you've seen a picture of Nicolas Cage on the internet, it's probably this one. There's a there's an amazing bit where he's he's in the men's toilet and uh, he looks in the mirror and. Although his reflection is there, he's mentally ill, so he can't see it.
1: Oh, Christ. Oh, Christ, where where am I? Where am I? Where, Where am I? Oh, Christ, where am I?
0: Uh, I mean, we haven't touched on this amazingly yet, but Nicolas Cage was going full method, apparently, for this film. Mm. He was apparently really into the method style of acting around this point, although it seems like he's got over that. (laughs) And that extended to apparently insisting that he eat... There's a scene where the character eats a cockroach, uh, which is something Nicolas Cage insisted that he do for real. Um, It was apparently an egg originally in the script just like a raw egg but Cage was like no it should be a cockroach and I'm going to do it for real <laughs> and it's funny because you can tell <laughs> because the scene cuts really early which is obviously yeah, just to he was about sort of to start really awkwardly
1: up. filmed because he, he immediately moves out of position as soon as he puts in his mouth
0: <laughs> but apparently he did two takes of that so you know, mm, you know. he's committed yeah <laughs> should be uh, he yells at Alva some more. He abuses her so much, she takes a sick day off work because she can't bear to go into the office and get yelled at more. Nicolas Cage then uh, goes to her house <laughs> to, like, convince her to come into work because he needs her help, and he puts on a very nice guy act when he's there.
1: Yeah, he apologises to her several times. Like After he does something, he always try, makes up to her, but then turns
0: on her again, you know seemingly with no trigger just out of the blue he'll just go on her again um but she i think he turns on her on the in the taxi on the way back to work having convinced her to come in uh so she's she has you know she knows oh god he's just exactly the same as ever so she convinces him to stop at a garage where her brother works on the way in and she asks her brother for a gun (laughs) um that he has or no for bullets is that it? Yeah,
1: because she's got the gun
0: anyway, but it's just for show to scare someone off if someone tries to mug her or something. You know? So, so he gives her blanks because he doesn't even have any bullets himself. He says, you, you know, you don't need them. So she uses blanks to scare him off. So then later on, when he attacks her at work and chases her down a corridor and you know into this kind of what was it like the basement level, he ends up shooting himself with blanks and becoming utterly convinced he is one hundred percent a vampire because. You know, he just tried to kill himself with a gun, and it didn't work. Yeah, and it went off, and nothing happened. But that—that's
1: the other thing about his character is, yeah, this this swing. Like, you know, he he's a vampire and he's doing vampire things, but he's also he wants to die. Like, he, he he's pushing Alva a lot of the time because he wants to kill her. Get your gun, Alva. Get your gun out. Like, he he wants to push her so much that she'll kill him. Mm. And then when she won't do it, he tries to kill himself. And then he's, you know, later he's just stumbling around the streets, asking people to kill him. (laughs) And, you know, it's this, it's this dichotomy of like him sometimes embracing it. And then sometimes like being aware enough that he wants to be out of it, but he still doesn't realize he's ill. He just thinks he's a vampire. It's like, there's so much there that could work and is really interesting that just, and the same with Alva, like what he's doing to her is gaslighting. You know, he's like, he's, constantly putting her down he's setting her up to fail making yeah. things her fault and then like being really nice to her until she's like oh he's he's not so bad and then he'll turn on her again but we it never feels like we're exploring that Do you know it, it, yeah, it just no, this know. feels like it, a lot of
0: a lot of premises that never quite come to any fruition it's all too one note i think that's why or like we mm. need to see all of these elements build and progress yeah and they don't <laughs> they're all there from the start and they don't get more extreme, except you know he his belief in himself being a vampire becomes more extreme, but yeah. that's kind of the and end. And I,
1: of it. I think the kind of the destruction of his life needs to build as well, because yeah. there needs to be a sense of like, oh well, you know, he's lost his girlfriend because of this, he's lost his job because of this, and like, and that never quite happens. We there's quite a lot at the beginning where there's this girl he's dating, and then he keeps standing her up because, or
0: you go the other way. And you do satire with it and he gets a promotion. <laughs>
1: yeah, he's like, yeah, his horrible behaviour gets results. But yeah,
0: there's the bit at the beginning with the girl like when we're
1: introduced to it, it just it doesn't feel like a strong relationship. It just feels like they're dating or something, pretty casual. Well, yeah, but then, yeah like completely. when when she sort of rejects him because he keeps standing up on all this stuff, it's like supposed to be this big blow to him. And it never works, that whole bit that yeah. doesn't work. It just feels like there's quite a slow 20 first 20 minutes of the film. Mm. There's so much here that just never quite comes to anything, is it? You know.
0: There's a point after this gunshot in the mouth where he becomes utterly convinced that he is... And and we should add that he, you know, like you say, he pushes Alva to try and kill him. That goes so far as trying to rape her
1: she passes out or something she's unconscious on the ground when he tries to kill himself and it's not particularly clear if he assaults her or not sexually assaults her or not he himself as a character later says to someone oh I raped someone the other day it, it, it that in itself is all happening in his head, so it's difficult to mm. take him as a reliable narrator. But also her reaction to it—well,
0: yeah, it's that of someone who was, yeah,
1: yeah. That it, it does certainly imply something a bit worse than oh, he scared her. Even though that's been building to a point where she should
0: be, you know, at a wits' end with all this,
1: her response is definitely
0: well. Her her response is pure depression. You know, she won't get out of bed and won't. And then talk she to tells
1: people. her brother what's happened, and her brother goes to basically go and kill this guy.
0: And her brother knows knows this guy because she's asked for a gun to defend herself against this guy previously.
1: Yeah, I'm not quite... Again, it's just one of those elements that's not quite clear. I'm not yeah. sure
0: why. Uh, a bit of trivia for you, Alan. Uh, Nicolas Cage was staying in a hotel while they shot this film. And mm. he was staying in the hotel with his cat. Right. Is that a euphemism? Apparently his cat tore up the hotel room and he refused to let room service (laughs) sort it out. (laughs) That's all the info I have on that.
1: (laughs) Why do you have a cat?
0: (laughs) So then he basically embraces fully being an evil vampire and goes and buys a set of uh, fangs
1: this is another scene that really should be funny. Mm. He goes to the shop, this guy goes, Oh, look at these great fangs we've got. They're really they're really well made. They look cool. Uh, yeah, they're they're twenty dollars. And he looks at him, well, he hasn't got enough money. So he's like, What else have you got? He's like, Oh well, these cheap plastic ones, they're three dollars. He's like, I'll take them.
0: Yeah, like the Halloween plastic fangs, yeah.
1: That what it should be a funny scene. He should be laughing at it, because then he puts them in, he's this crappy, like cheap Halloween teeth, and he's walking around thinking he's a vampire. And it's, it is funny, but not on the level it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean.
0: It's like, the joke is there, and yet you laugh at it and not with it. And I don't know why that is, but it is true. Yeah. And and so he goes out into a nightclub doing a sort of Nosferatu impression with hunched shoulders and girly yeah, eyes. Yeah,
1: and the, and the hands up and all that, yeah.
0: And um, he sort of stalks his way around the nightclub, sees a woman sat on her own in a... a Amazingly quiet, not busy area. (laughs) But it's that classic thing, I think, of nightclubs and films where they just haven't got the lighting right because it's lit like a normal room so you can see everyone really well. It's not lit in (laughs) low light, which is what these things are like. You know, it's just very flat direction again. Anyway, he sees this woman and approaches her. And again, I think this is part of why it doesn't play as a joke because she sees the ridiculous fangs in his mouth and how bizarre he is she acknowledges that it looks absurd and thinks, oh, he must be joking. He's doing some sort of silliness. He's 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 doing a silly bit of flirting, pretending to be a vampire. How fun. And plays along with it. Which, like, is a nice bit of, you know, it's nicely performed and a nice sort of idea, but it doesn't play with the tone that they're going for, you know? And I think in a better film, that scene would exist, but she would be with a friend and laughing about it or something to just make it a bit more obvious how we're supposed to feel. Mm. But anyway, he, he starts kissing this woman's neck and then it escalates. She's not, you know, she doesn't like it. She tries to hit him away and he bites her on the neck and attacks her. And that kills her very quickly. He, you know, he's having a mad killing spree at this point. I think I've, I've, uh, I think it happens before this moment, but he captures a pigeon out in the street <laughs> yeah. and takes it home and eats it. We just see feathers all around his house. We, we we see his flat and it's um everything's just torn to pieces and smashed up and he's started sleeping underneath his sofa, which he's turned upside down to be kind of like a coffin. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird film, isn't it? <laughs> and, and I think is it basically at this point that he just runs around the street going full on cage? Yeah groaning carrying a big piece of wood that he's trying to use as a stake (laughs) Well,
1: yeah he's running around going I'm a vampire I'm a vampire and then yeah he finds a piece of a big wooden stake so he's trying to get people to kill him he breaks a
0: a pallet apart to give him a a stake to use and yeah then he starts going up to people on the street and and saying please kill me kill me I'm a vampire I'm a vampire Kill kill
1: me kill me
0: Did you know, Alan? Apparently, that was all shot with a long lens, <laughs> with real like real people on the street who didn't know he was an actor making a film.
1: It did feel like that. There was de- it definitely mm. felt like that kind of filming, yeah.
0: Yeah, which leads me onto a tangent. Actually, I've uh, I've been thinking since our Borat and Bruno episodes where we lamented <laughs> uh, there not being a name for this genre Ooh. of of uh, filmmaking where you kind of like hidden camera, but the camera. Uh, isn't necessarily hidden. You're, you're, I mean, it is in this case, but you know where you're kind of playing a prank on someone, but it's woven into a narrative. Borat, mm. Bruno, Windy City Heat, they're the three films we've covered on this show, or Diminisodes, that are firmly in the genre. This film has elements of it. I think a lot of films have elements of it. Shall I pitch these to you now? Okay. I have a favourite, but I'm going to give you some weaker ones first. <laughs> Doc-ku-mentary. Like a coup. Doc. Coup. C-O-U-P. Doc. Right. And how is that like, relevant? Because <laughs> it's like a coup against whoever you're doing a prank on.
1: Is it? Is that what a
0: coup is? Okay, okay, alright. <laughs> Doc skew-mentory. Skew, as in you're
1: skewing reality?
0: Yeah. No? Closer, warmer. Alright, alright. Cinema unawareity. Okay, I like that. (laughs) The problem with that is it doesn't look like anything. It just looks like a cat's walked across the keyboard when it's written down. You have to say it out loud. It's French though, isn't it? It's classy. Yeah. Uh, And then I I have two other riffs on that that aren't as good. Cinema Ver astray, Cinema Ver purvey. (laughs) Uh, And then the one I'm actually pitching to you here. uh, Cinematic Concealism. Ooh,
1: it sounds fancy
0: Concealism, I think, is is what we're going to go with here
1: Hmm What do you think? Concealism You are concealing the true nature of what you're doing Hmm, I don't hate it It hasn't got the punch of cinema (laughs) (laughs) awarity. Cinema-unawareity Oh yes, sorry, unawareity, of course Uh... We need it to be French, that's the trouble. All your best cinematic movements are French.
0: This is the thing, Alan. I've decided that in order to try and promote this podcast, I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best now to brute force this like whatever term we decide upon into the <laughs> lexicon. We're gonna get it yeah. into the dictionary at some point.
1: Concealism. Because yeah.
0: this this is a legitimate genre. There's no name for it. So we need a Wikipedia entry on this genre. We need to add it to Urban Dictionary. Uh we need to write to Grammar Girl and get her to talk about whether it's a real word or not. <laughs> we, we we need to get it out there to the point because once it's out there, people will start using it because there isn't a word for this. <laughs> we found a niche. So so what do you reckon? I reckon concealism has more chance of taking off just because it sounds more real. But as much as I like cinema unawareity, as a as that's
1: a... the comedy option, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: well I don't have anything better to offer you, so. All right, I'm I'm going with concealism. <laughs> uh, it's it's that's the official diminishing returns take on this this subject. <laughs> From now on, we're going to talk about cinematic concealism. So you need to keep up and spread the word. Just start dropping it in, like oh. I... I really like films in in the concealism genre, when you're chatting to people. (laughs) And I'll go, what? What do you mean? And you go, oh, you know, like Borat and Bruno and and, uh, Impractical Jokers, the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And Vampire's Kiss, the scenes at the end when he's running around the streets (laughs) pretending to be a vampire. That, again, is a perfect example of how this film doesn't work. Because that should be really funny. If Sacha Baron Cohen... Yeah. made a film where he thought he was becoming a vampire and there were sequences of him running around New York with a piece of wood going, I'm a vampire, kill me, kill me, up to people. It would be, like, funny. But that's because they do it
1: 30 times and then pick the best one.
0: Yeah, whereas here, yeah, here it doesn't seem like that. and But also tonally, there's nothing in it to suggest they're real people. You can tell with a few of the reactions are very, you know... sincere. Um, Yeah, they're just trying to pretend it's not happening. Yeah, there's nothing about this film that would suggest to you that you're getting real people in the film, so it doesn't play in that way. You know, at at least when Under the Skin had Scarlett Johansson Mm. going out uh, on the streets of Scotland, like, the people she was talking to were blatantly not professional actors, so you kind of started to think, oh, I wonder if these are, like, actual... Whereas here. Well, yeah,
1: did they employ concealism on that film? That's what you'd think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And they did. It's going to be added to the Wikipedia page for Under the Skin. (laughs) This film employs the uh, style of cinematics concealism.
1: (laughs) Perhaps the problem is this was New York in the 80s. You know, a a mentally ill person shouting at you in the street was... Probably happens every twenty yards.
0: Well, I, I I'm sure it happens now, you mm. know, and and I mean, Chris, I remember, I you know, I I used to live in Reading when I was a child, and I remember there was a man who used to just walk around the streets, he he just shout just nonstop, like you know, I'm not going to imitate it, but he was just yelling, just yelling. Uh, is
1: there any chance this was an early Sasha Baron Cohen character? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like his
0: sort of thing. But my point is, you know. You do see mad people out in the street, in city centres to this day. You don't think that much of it. You might kind of look at them like, what on earth, but just kind of keep going. God, Al- mm. Alan, you and I used to live together in Brixton. Mm. <laughs>
1: Yeah, every, every day. People
0: um, stood stood on literal soapboxes with megaphones, yelling about, you know... Usually
1: about how much Jesus loves you and or hates you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were going for. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and they always did that outside KFC, which I always felt really kind of undermined their message somehow. I don't know why, but it's just not a good backdrop for a proper message, is it, a KFC? <laughs> so in this film, Alan... Uh, apparently, Cage arrived. Nicolas Cage arrived first day on set with a pencil mustache. Right. <laughs> and the director convinced him to lose it. I think he. I think he gave some reason to do with the fangs or something. I can't remember what he said, but he convinced him to get rid of it. I think that's a shame. I think it would have. I think it would have uh, been even better if he had a pencil mustache. For the <laughs> it does sound like the director had to
1: do yeah more Cage funneling than I, I thought. Yeah, I thought yeah. this was. F-
0: Full loose cage, but I guess this was Cage very much on the ascent, you know, hmm. figuring out his place in the world and how many mad demands he can get away with making, <laughs> how many he can't. Just thinking about directors and, and Cage and stuff. I I went through his CV.
1: I was trying to figure out who, like, how many directors have worked with Cage more, what, than, more once, than once. You know how, <laughs> how So I've got a little. This can be a. Oh, okay. This can yeah. be a bit of a quiz for you there. So I've got I've oh, got those... a list here of the people who have directed him more than once uh, do you want to see if you can get any throw some yeah yeah I
0: I reckon um are they called Neville Dean and Taylor the guys who did Ghost Rider right yeah because there's two Ghost Rider films I'm guessing oh no but they they did they do both of them no Shit. <laughs> but 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 one of them made mum and dad yes Brian Taylor
1: who co-directed Ghost Rider spirit of Vengeance only the f- second mm. one uh as Neville Dean and Taylor and yes he did Mum and dad as well That is one of the correct answers. Yes.
0: Okay. How many answers are there that I can get? I mean, how many altogether?
1: There are. Hang on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, Does Francis Ford Coppola count? Hang on. There are three people who've worked with him three times. Does Francis Ford Coppola count? He
1: certainly does. Francis Ford Coppola made three films with Nicolas Cage in his early days.
0: Obviously, Peggy Sue got married. Him and a, then a few yeah. films where he was an extra, I think, basically.
1: Rumblefish, where he's one of the gang members, the oh, Cotton did Club, he and, make that yeah, well? and the Cotton Club, and Peggy Sue got married. So there's three films there.
0: Okay, what else? Let's see. I
1: mean, there's a couple of known names here, but most <laughs> most of these are like eh, who?
0: <laughs> oh god, what's the name of the guy who did Requiem for a Dream? Uh, Aronofsky. Oh, I don't think he's done another one. He hasn't done one, has he? What am I thinking? Oh, sorry, not Wet Requiem, Requiem for a Dream. What am I thinking of? Um, I was thinking of Leaving Las Vegas. I don't know how I can find oh, right, those yeah. two films.
1: <laughs> yeah, Mike Figgis Leaving Las Vegas. No, that's just the one with him.
0: Um, oh, he doesn't he doesn't appear in Kick-Ass 2 at all, does he? No. Uh, I think I mean, there might be a photograph of him and a voice clip or something from the first film, but he wasn't in it. And Kick-Ass 2 wasn't directed by Matthew Vaughan anyway, was it? So it wouldn't be that one. Ooh, what about Tony Scott or Ridley Scott?
1: No, he has done one with Ridley Scott. He did Matchstick Men. I don't ah, think he's ever it. with Tony Scott. I
0: was trying to, I was trying to think who did uh, Con Air, but I don't know who made that film. I haven't seen it.
1: I can tell you made Con Air. Go on. Simon West.
0: Okay, I don't know who that is. So I mean, exactly,
1: he is. The <laughs> That's his. Conair is the highlight of his career. I will tell you another thing though. He made Stolen in 2012 with Nicolas Cage. Oh, okay. so he is one of the names on my list. Did
0: Conair and Stolen Simon West? Interesting. Talking about cinematic concealism, he yeah. did a film with Larry Charles, didn't he? That one uh, yeah, well, where, yeah. it, but it wasn't shot in that style, unfortunately. Which is a real missed opportunity because how great would it be to get a Nicolas Cage film where it is just him? fucking about with members of the public.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know, isn't that his entire life? What's that clip of him getting thrown out of a hotel? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's
0: it's a nightclub, I believe, and he shouts, he shouts audibly, among other inaudible bits, I will die with fucking honour. God, what was... um... Oh, I've gotta get another one. This is ridiculous. Um Right, he did he did two National Treasures, didn't he? I think. Yes. Did they, they have the same director? They did. I've no idea who directed those, but
1: uh we discussed them recently. John Turtletaub.
0: Oh really? Oh of course we did, you're right.
1: Uh yeah, John Turtletau did National Treasure and National Treasure Book of Secrets and The Sorcerer's Apprentice.
0: Ooh. So he has made three films with Nicolas Cage. Has he ever done Oh man, my head's not working today. What's the name of that director who died very recently, who's called Joe... Schumacher? Is that his name? Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. Has he done two with him? I know he did one. He did 8mm with him, didn't he?
1: He did do 8mm. He also did Trespass. Yes,
0: there you go. See, I I knew... I was trying to think of trashy directors who might have made, you know, one of these crappy, (laughs) latter-day Nicolas Cage movies, because...
1: There's quite a few of those on this list, I'll tell you. <laughs> he
0: just churns out films these days, Nicolas Cage, like four or five films a year with yeah. him as the lead. And one of those films every year is like obviously a project that he cares about. And the other four are just, just dreadful. <laughs> um, Don't think I'm going to get any others, to be honest.
1: Okay, right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some more. The only person who worked with him twice in the 90s, Andrew Bergman.
0: Oh, I know that name. Does it, do you? Yeah, why do I know that For name? Why? I, I don't know. Well, t- tell me what Nicolas Cage films he's done. Maybe that's why.
1: Uh Honeymoon in Vegas.
0: Okay, I've not seen that one. And it could happen to you. Oh, I've not seen that. <laughs> What's his name? And Andrew Bergman. Andrew Bergman, yeah. Let me look this up. He wrote
1: striptease. He directed it as well. Yeah, <laughs> his top credit
0: on IMDb when you search for him.
1: Well, that's why his career stopped.
0: Oh, he he wrote. Yeah, I def I do know this guy's. Yeah, yeah. He he wrote Fletch and Blazing Saddles and. Oh yeah. I think Alan. Uh, as you know, we've been doing a few of these diminisodes the looking at my various film lists, and I think I know this name because I was, uh, recently investigating whether I'd seen enough films in Andrew Bergman's career <laughs> as a writer for him to make the. Uh, averaged writer crew <laughs> that I have. We've only spoken about the director one, but uh, there's a writer one as well. Oh,
1: excellent. We'll do that at some point. Uh, okay, so I'll tell you else I've got here. Let me tell you... I'll tell you the film and you, see, and, and you can name the director. The, the person who directed Face Off.
0: Oh my god, really? John Woo did two films with him. Yeah,
1: do you know what the second film was?
0: No. I, I, I thought of John Woo and I thought, no, he didn't do a second film with Cage.
1: Uh, Wind Talkers.
0: Oh really? Apparently, that's meant to be one of the better cage films as well. Actually, it's been on my list for a long time. That one.
1: Uh, then
0: I've almost been saving it. Then I've
1: got uh, Dominic Sena, who directed Gone in 60 Seconds and Season of
0: the Witch. So it really does seem like he works with people where they make a, a successful, well-received film together. And then
1: they come back to the well ten years later. <laughs>
0: It suggests to me that Cage is the driving force behind not reworking with people rather than them. Right, yeah, yeah, I understand. Because it's like he's picking the directors that have done a good film with him rather than, you know, if he was just a nightmare to work with, then, Mm -hmm. you know.
1: Well, what about this one then? Oliver Stone. They did World Trade Center. Oh,
0: World Trade Center. Yeah, yeah, World Trade Center's the one I know. And
1: then Snowden.
0: Oh, really? Now,
1: Nicolas Cage definitely isn't the lead of Snowden. I'm not sure exactly what, like, how big a role he is in that, but huh. the, the most recent entry on this list, Nick Powell, who made Outcast and Primal. So, oh. yeah, that's just the films he's been churning out. These uh...
0: I've seen Primal. Oh, yeah? Primal is um, an amazing concept for a Nicolas Cage movie, but it doesn't deliver on the Nicolas Cage aspect very well. Uh, Nicholas Cage plays a, a like a game hunter. Oh, yeah. um, he might be a, he might be a poacher. I can't remember. And he ends up on a boat transporting all these animals he's caught across the sea. Uh, and they're also transporting like a, a serial killer who breaks free and lets all the animals out on the boat. So <laughs> it's just Nicolas Cage running around the boat trying to catch wild animals whilst hunting the most dangerous animal of all, man. <laughs> it's an amazing. Set up for a film, and it, it sadly doesn't really deliver. I promise.
1: <laughs> okay, the last name on my list, a bit perhaps a bit shocking. They made three films together over three years, from twenty fourteen to wow. twenty seventeen.
0: Little love affair.
1: Paul Schrader.
0: I I I actually nearly guessed Paul Schrader. Yeah. Uh, just then, but I ah oh, man, yeah, because they made um, they made a film called Dying with the Light. I dying think. of the light. Yeah. Yeah, about Nicholas Cage going blind. And there was something with that film where it was, like, taken away from Paul Schrader and the studio were bringing in a new person to, like, re-edit it and their cut was taken away from them and they were both very unhappy and it was a whole thing and the film got delayed and delayed. I I I guess it must have come out by now. Um, I didn't know they'd done two others together, though.
1: Well, they did a film called Dog Eat Dog and then a film called Dark. Hmm which I don't know. I've just looked it up, though. It's uh, 75 minutes long. <laughs> so that's my kind of... Thing. <laughs> so anyway, obviously some directors do go back to the cage. And, yeah, like you said, it seems like you have one good film with him and then one in the last 10 years where you need the money. <laughs> yeah. just Just jump back to Vampire's Kiss... Um, is there anything else we we want to
0: address? It's like easy to forget you're watching a film when you watch <laughs> it. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like it taps into the theory of you know Brecht's theory of alienation. You you can't submerge yourself in it because it's so fucking weird and tonally out of place with itself. And Nicolas Cage is so insane and big. And you, like you might as well be watching a YouTube compilation of Nicolas <laughs> Cage's maddest moments. <laughs> And it's pretty much the same thing for an hour and 43 minutes, just pure, undistilled Nicolas Cage. So I had a hard time rating this, really, because it's it's a bad film, really, it is, but I can't help but find it incredibly entertaining.
1: I was the same, and also there was a lot of, like we've talked about a little bit, there's a lot of elements here that are really interesting. You never
0: get to them really properly, but... It it, it feels... You know, I've watched this film, like, five or six times now. I've seen it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's more than I've watched most good films that I (laughs) like. But it's just so funny. It's a classic, like, it's a film I show people, you know? Friends come over and I'll whack on Vampire's Kiss and we'll laugh at it. (laughs) But then, like I say, it is supposed to be funny. It is a comedy. So I've got to give it some degree of credit for what it's doing. Yeah. So I, I, ultimately I gave it a five out of ten, and I think that's incredibly generous. To be honest, I, I think if I were to be completely objective about this, it's more of a three or a four out of ten. <laughs> yeah. But it's just so entertaining, and and you know it's definitely made the world a better place by existing. <laughs>
1: yeah, I th- I basically agree with you. I I th- I think, you know, you put a different actor in this role, an actor who is going to go big, go make some brave decisions and the director to encourage that, but also one who understands what they're actually doing. Um, and I think you you could have a half-decent film here. Um, I think the ingredients are there, or at least some of them. And I think if your director's not so focused on trying to wrangle the actor, he might be able to do more
0: with it. Exactly. It, it would have to be, based on the script they have, you would have to get someone like Judd Apatow in to direct who... Is gonna work with the actors to improv loads of gags. But you're right that that is how some films are written, and some films end up being good with that as their their style of being made. You know, yeah. and they could potentially the the concept's wonderful. I, I love it. And
1: and I think you could pl- I think you could definitely take this concept and play it seriously. Yeah. And and, and come out with a, a very solid film as well.
0: Yeah. If Christopher Nolan made this film, it would be great <laughs> as well. You know. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah, I, but I, I largely agree with you. Um, and for similar reasons, I came down on a 5 out of 10 as well. To those of you listening, I, I cannot recommend watching this film enough. If you've got any interest in Nicolas Cage whatsoever, this is the cagiest cage that ever caged, <laughs> you know? It, it's. I mean, I, I probably don't need to sell it because I'm sure there have been enough audio clips dropped into this edit uh, <laughs> at this point to justify what we're on about. <laughs> but um it it really is just as a cinematic marvel as an artifact watch it (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. uh and as a a bit of a tie-in with this episode so we have done a, a a diminisode uh looking at cage films uh basically you had a list of the best cage performances was that what it was or like the most cage performances
0: <laughs> we we've started a little run of uh diminisodes looking at my many many film lists out there because there aren't as many new releases coming out at the minute for us to chat about uh so we're getting <clears throat> creative and
1: but we we compared some cage ratings
0: yeah yeah we we just not we didn't plan to do it as a tie in it kind of turned into that organically halfway through but uh, I have a list. I, I'm on a, a, a mission to watch every Nicholas Cage mill, uh, every Nicholas Cage film ever made. Uh, which I will do at some point. It's very hard because he's adding like five more terrible films every year.
1: I went through his CV earlier with his directors thing. There's over hundred. There's hundred and two feature films uh, with Nicholas Cage uh, according to the uh, filtered list
0: of of his uh, on IMDb. So I've seen somewhere in the region of half of those maybe a bit less than that but I'm I, I keep a list just ranking them all and rating Nicholas Cage out of 10 in them as well. So we ended up chatting about that and having another chat about his career and some of his other roles, which was very nice. Uh, talking about getting creative with our diminisodes as well, I, I just put something up recently where I I screened Avengers Endgame for uh, my mum and stepdad who've never seen a Marvel <laughs> movie before to see if they'd make sense of it and edited down some of their comments into a little fly-on-the-wall. Uh,
1: yes. <laughs> it's almost cinematic uh, concealism.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, almost. exactly. Exactly. So there's some, you know, we're still putting up some quality stuff on the Patreon. Head over there, check it out. One dollar a month. Patreon.com/slash diminishing Fuck. Patreon.com/slash dim returns. Yeah. So yeah, if you if your
1: appetite has been whetted by this Nicholas Cage discussion, we will drop our Nicholas Cage diminisode, uh this week as this episode goes out. So yeah, Patreon.com/forward/slash dim returns. Just one dollar a month to help support the show, get a bit of extra content as well. Mm. Thank you for listening.
0: Yeah, thanks guys.
1: Uh, okay, Sol, well you, you brought us in uh, in Cage. I think you should take us out as Cage as well. Alright. Uh... See
0: you around, man!
1: Is <laughs> that him doing his Jamaican accent?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the Jamaican accent he wanted to do in The Green Hornet. But uh, (laughs) Michelle Gondry wouldn't let him And he ultimately dropped out of the project Because they wouldn't let him do a Jamaican accent And that is why He's the true (laughs) artist
1: Yeah